Amen, and good morning. I know it may be uh, confusing. My name is Stephen. Pastor Stephen's name is Stephen. We look almost identical. Um, But uh, uh, if you're new here, that's a joke. Um, But uh, it is a joy and a privilege to be continuing with you this morning. Uh, What we do here at Hillside often and most is that we go through books of the Bible in depth. And we're in the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 5 verses 18 through 29 today, so if you want to open that up on your phone or turn to it in your Bible, that's, that would be a good time to do so. And I want to talk to you about something real quick to kick this off. I want to talk to you about the idea of big reveals. Maybe you haven't thought of it before, but our culture, in fact, I would, I would submit our world loves big reveals. Uh, if you don't believe me, um, just think about the, every time a new car is launched and they rip off the sheet and they announce the car and everybody applauds and, and they, they give the stats and everybody learns something new about the car. Or gender reveals, right? We didn't know the gender and now we do and everybody celebrates because they've learned something. We see it every time a new iPhone rolls out, which is like once a month now. We see that happening and everybody's excited because something new is happening and they're learning something. We see it all the time in our stories, in books, in movies. Things like, Luke, I am your father. What? Right? The big reveal, or perhaps my favorite, is Avengers Endgame, when Thor's hammer floats up off the ground, and then Captain America reveals that he is worthy to wield Thor's hammer. And if you were in the theater with me, the whole theater erupted in applause. It was a big deal. It was appropriate to clap. In fact, there's a a, a sense in which we don't learn without new things being revealed to us. Oh, I didn't know that, and now I do. And there's also a sense in, in, in which the The bigger the reveal, the bigger the thing that you learn, the more appropriate it is that you respond appropriately. So, for instance, gender reveals. My sister Jenny, who lives out in Colorado, she is having a baby girl. We just found that out. It's super exciting. And if I responded with, yeah, so, I've had two, that would be the inappropriate response to the gender reveal. Right? It's very important that when we learn certain things that have value and that have weight in our lives, that we respond to them appropriately. And we're going to see in our passage today on John 5, verses 18 through 29, the greatest reveal so far in human history. God become flesh. God become flesh. But there's a tension in our passage. There's something dramatically wrong that we're going to see. The response to this reveal is significantly lacking. It's wrong. And so we're going to work through this today. But before we do, I want to give you the big idea of our message. And I want to do that because if this was just entertainment, if I was standing up here for your verbal pleasure, which I hope it is, But if that was the sole purpose of this, then I would not give you the main idea of the passage right at the beginning. I would wait until the climax of the story, and then boom, hit everybody with the big reveal, everyone would clap, we would all stand up and go home. That's not what we're doing here. 
We're learning about God's Word. And so I love that Pastor Stephen gives us the big idea of his message before he even starts it because he's giving you, me being the physical therapist and using body analogies, he's giving you the skeleton that when you walk through this passage, you can put muscles and nerves and flesh on it and you can learn about it and sculpt, re-sculpt the body or the painting that has been written for us. And so here's the big idea of our message. Honor Jesus, for he reflects the Father by speaking life and judgment. Honor Jesus, for he reflects the Father by speaking life and judgment. Okay, one more time for you slow note takers. Honor Jesus, for he reflects the Father by speaking life and judgment. So, with this big, in, big idea in mind, it's been two weeks since we've been here. We had to cancel last week because of safety and COVID precautions, which was altogether appropriate. So I want to just make sure that we are in tune with where we've been headed so far in John. I'm just going to do a one or two uh, quick minute like uh, review so that we can just go through this, uh, this passage and kind of know where we've been already. All right, so... Uh, we started, one of the big things that we're gonna, we covered was Jesus turning water into wine. And we learned that Jesus is the new and better wine, a reason to celebrate. And then we learned that Jesus cleansed a temple, and he was consumed with zeal for God. Spoiler alert, he was consumed to the point of death on a cross. Then we see that Jesus is a patient and gracious God who teaches that you must be born again to a religious leader who should know these things, Nicodemus. And then we learn from Ted Boykin about the woman, the woman at the well. And we learn that Jesus offers life to the dead because he is the Savior of the world. And then we learned about the official who had a sick son and sought out Jesus. And we learn that Jesus' very words speak and bring life. And then last time, Pastor Stephen preached on the lame man who was healed in the pool of Bethsaida. And we learn that Jesus takes what is broken and makes it whole. And what I want everybody to be thinking about when we go through our passage today is that everything we have seen seen Jesus do up until this moment is the culmination of something. It's as if his very words and his very actions are working. It's as if he has a goal, as if something is in mind that Jesus is doing when he is doing these things. And all of those things are going to culminate in today's passage today. So we're going to pick off exactly where Pastor Stephen left off. We're going to pick up uh, in verse 18. That's where he ended actually last week. And uh, if you're a note taker, I'm going to be through this sermon, uh, this sermon today, I'm going to be asking the question, who is Jesus? And then I'm going to be answering it based on the text that we're walking through. That's one of the things, one of the wonderful things that the book of John does. It answers very well the question, who is Jesus? So, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, 
making himself equal with God. Now, let's not miss a very big point here. Jesus claimed to be God. You might have religious affiliations come up to your door and knock on your door and tell you that they have the way to truth and life, and then when you dig into it, you will realize they do not think Jesus claimed to be God. You may hear in universities or other places in public, Jesus did not claim to be God. That's something that you Christians wrote in. Well, you can open up to John chapter 5, verse 18, and you can say, that's nonsense. Everybody who heard this right here drew the conclusion that Jesus was making himself equal to God. And what I want us to see here is that already in the beginning of our passage, this is the antithesis of our big idea. What does our big idea start with? Honor Jesus. And what are we seeing in verse 18? They don't want to honor Christ. They want to kill him. They don't want to surrender. They want to fight. This is the opposite of what should be happening in our passage today. And yet Jesus, good and gracious Jesus, I want you to see something else here. This is just amazing to me. To a hateful and sinful people that when he reveals who he is, God made flesh, he doesn't back down. He doesn't say, oh, you know, it's getting a little tense. Didn't realize you weren't ready for that. I'll come back. I'll do it later. He doesn't. But why? Because Jesus is a good and gracious God whom the greatest thing that he could do for sinful and hateful people is reveal himself. That is the most merciful and kind thing he could do is he could plant his feet and say, no, I'm not going to back down from my statement. In fact, the rest of our sermon today is going to be Jesus fleshing out exactly what he meant by his claim. That's what we're going to be covering today. Jesus saying, you know what? I made that claim. Seems like you guys didn't get it. Let me spell it out for you. Okay? So I want you to prepare yourself. This is going to, there's going to be some heavy moments here. Jesus is going to take off the proverbial gloves, and he's going to make sure there's no room for mis misinterpretation. Verse 19 and verse 20. So Jesus, already we see Jesus' response to their response. So Jesus. He's responding to their response. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Now already in our passage in verse 18 and the verse before, verse 17 there was this clear idea that Jesus was equal to God in person. He says, I'm God's son. I'm equal to God in person. But now he's going on to say, I'm not only equal in person, I'm equal in works. What the Father does, I do likewise. There's an equality here of he does what God does. And the first time I read this, read this I'll, I'll admit to you, I read this wrong. This came across to me as kind of oppressive relationship that Jesus has with the Father. He can do nothing on his own accord, but only what the Father does. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. 
Jesus is saying that he is God and that he has a perfect relationship with God. That he reflects the Father. Our big idea, honor Jesus for he reflects the Father. And he is saying that I cannot act apart from God because God does not act apart from himself. I am God. I always do what is right. My action is always the best action that can be taken. There is no action greater that God can take than the action that he takes. And because I am God and I have a perfect relationship with the Father, I do exactly as the Father does. Now, um, Pastor Stephen is the king of analogies. I will not try to compare. I'll just use his. So um, when I was going over this with him, uh, he used the analogy of harmony in music. And he said it's as if God is playing music and he's in perfect harmony with himself. There is no room for deviation. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is not oppressive. This is a perfect loving relationship. So then... There are some absolutely huge implications to this idea that are going to echo into the rest of our sermon. And here's the first one, and perhaps this is the biggest one. If you want to then know God of the universe, if you want to know him intimately, the king of the universe, you have to know Jesus. If you want to know his character, if you want to know what he's like, you have to look at Jesus. If you want to know God better and how to honor him, you go to Jesus and you honor him. Pastor Stephen, on the message of the, uh, sick, uh, the uh, son with the sick official, he said that you cannot glorify God without knowing who God is. Jesus is claiming to be God. So, then the implications of that are, it is impossible it is, you are unable, there is no way that you can come to God without Jesus and have a good relationship with him. That means you cannot know God intimately. You cannot be right with God without Jesus. And I have heard this told to me, people have said this to me, I have heard this taught when I was in a university that there are many ways to God. Allah is a way to God. Jesus is a way to God. The Old Testament laws are a way to God. And Jesus is standing here saying, No! I am the reflection of God. You want to know who God is? It's through me that you learn this. So there are two very quick asides I want to give you on this implication. And the first one is a theological thing that we should just all be aware of. There's a very old and dangerous heresy. It's that people will say you cannot, or that people will say the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, they don't go together. There's a different God in the Old Testament than there is a New Testament. They don't match up. And it actually seems to be resurfacing in some of the groups I'm in on Facebook and things like this. This idea that there's a difference between God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. And Jesus is saying, no, I am God and I am the reflection of the Father of the Old Testament. Everything that I do here and now is a reflection of the Father. So if you hear that heresy, run. It's dangerous, it's old, don't give it any mind. And you can, you can point them to this passage if you want to. 
The next aside is this, and this is just something that when meditating on this scripture, I could not get over. How gracious and good is our God that he stepped off of his royal, celestial, universal throne to come down to earth so that we might know him personally, in person, in flesh. This is not a God who is removed from human history. He entered human history so that not only may we might know him, but that he can say things like, I know, I understand, I can relate. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is why earlier I said, when, uh, the, the other implication of this is, is when I said it's as if Jesus is working, it's as if Jesus is doing something with all of his actions and with all of his words. This is why. Because he is a reflection of God. He is working as God. So we study him to learn God. Everything that Jesus does, everything that he says that is recorded in his holy scriptures are for our learning and benefit to know God better. And there's another implication I just want to touch on real quick because it's here. And Jesus is actually going to tease this out later and even spell it out for the uh, people he's talking to. But the implication here then is if he's the perfect reflection of the Father... That you, if you honor Jesus, you honor God. And if you dishonor Jesus, you dishonor God. So then, who is Jesus? Here's the next question, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the perfect reflection of God the Father. The perfect reflection of God the Father. Remember our big idea, honor Jesus for he reflects the Father by speaking life and judgment. Now, there's one other part, uh, the end of this verse. It says, greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Now, I, I find it very interesting that it doesn't say so that you may believe. It says so you may marvel. Now, we know the book of John was written so that you may believe. It says that later on in the book, these things were written so that you may believe. But here, what Jesus is saying, he's saying that my works point to the glory of God, and everyone will marvel, regardless of not if they believe, at the works that I do, because my works point to the glorious God who is worthy of our marvel. And it is grace, it is grace that Jesus' works still point to God for our benefit and our behalf. But what greater works is he talking about? The very next verse tells us, verse 21, it's the raising of the dead. Verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now we know from the Old Testament that the hearers of Jesus right now, they have no qualms with Jesus having life and the power to give life. They know that he's the creator of the universe. They know that he uh, raised Adam up and breathed life into him. 
They know passages like Ezekiel 37, which actually last time I got to preach here, I, I turned to Ezekiel 37. We're not going to turn there. But Ezekiel 37 is that amazing passage where uh, God is in a desert with Ezekiel and they're dry, dead, lifeless bones. And he has his words preached over the dead bones and life is brought into them by God's words. And so we have no problem with God the Father having life and the power to give life. But Jesus is now saying that he has the power to give life to whom he will. So now he's not making only a claim in his equality to God in person or his equality to God in works, but his equality to God in power. For surely only God raises the dead. So then, I want to highlight here the end of this verse. The Son gives life to whom He will. This is not the time. We don't have the time. This is not the passage or the place for me to teach about the concepts of election and predestination. But what I don't want us to miss here is what Jesus is saying. It is He who has authority to give life. You cannot manipulate Jesus. You cannot make him give life. He gives life to whom he will. And uh, what's really neat about this, you know how we've been talking about Jesus being the perfect reflection of God of the Old Testament? Well, if we turn back to Exodus 33, 19b, we see this amazing passage where Moses speaks, or God speaks to Moses, and he says this, he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Jesus is the perfect reflection of God of the Old Testament. This is exactly what he is saying. I have the, the power to give life to whom I will. Just as God says, I have the ability to be merc merciful and gracious to whom I will. So what should our response to be that, to this? To this revelation that is Jesus who gives life in him alone. Our response should be to go to Jesus, the giver of life. Psalms 3.8 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jesus is saying, I am Lord. Jesus is making a claim here that no sane person makes. I've heard it said before that Jesus is either a liar, he's insane, or he's God. There is no room for misinterpretation when it comes to Jesus. In fact, Pastor Stephen, last message, pointed out that Jesus refuses to coexist. He refuses. And some of us might ask ourselves, why? Jesus, they're happy. They're, they think they've found God. They have the law. They're happy with where they're at. Why are you stirring the pot? Why are you being so cantankerous? Well, remember, the most merciful thing that Jesus can do if people are missing God because they are missing him is to direct them to himself. This is, this is just another example of Jesus' great and kind mercy to the sinful and hateful people. So we've just got a verse on life. Now we're going to have a verse on judgment. Verse 22 says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Remember our big idea? Honor Jesus, for he speaks life and 
judgment. Uh, Pastor Stephen, a while back at the beginning of our message, taught us that um, condemnation from God is already here. This passage is not saying that God the Father, he doesn't care, man. Who am I to judge? I don't judge. I'll leave that up to my son. It's not what it's saying at all. Condemnation is already here. God has already found us guilty. What this is saying is that God is handing over the right to execute judgment to Jesus. He is giving Jesus the authority to not only pronounce guilt, but to carry out the punishment. And we know that because later in our passage, we'll see in verse 27, it literally says that Jesus has the authority to execute judgment. It's right there in our passage. So this should start making sense to us. The dots should start connecting. If Jesus is equal to God in person, if he is equal to God in his works, if he is equal to God in his power and his might, if he is able to give life, certainly then he should be equal to God in judgment. And he is. Remember, he has the authority to act as God acts because he perfectly reflects the works works of the Father. So then, Who is Jesus? Here's our next one. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who will finally judge all. That's who Jesus is. He's telling us, this is who I am. I'm the one who will finally judge all. And uh, just as a quick aside, is it not fitting that the man who bore all of our sins on the cross, the man who bore our judgment, the God who bore our judgment, gets to judge in the end? I find that so fitting. So why does Jesus get to judge? Well, I've kind of already told you, right? He's God. Jesus gets to judge because he's God. But there's something else here that we'll see in verse 23. Jesus hammers this home. that he's, uh, It says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus gets to judge because if you miss Jesus, you've missed God. He is the door. He is the way. He is the truth in the life. If you miss Jesus, you've missed God and you have rightfully drunk judgment upon yourself. He gets to be judge because he is the living law. Can you imagine if the law became living and it was a person and it was perfect? It is. In Jesus, it is. So, uh, what then should our response to this be? Well, our response should be to honor Jesus. Our response should be to honor Jesus. What is Jesus saying to these people? If you do not honor me, you do not honor God. If you do honor me, you do honor God. Have you put yourself in the scenario that's happening right now? We should kill this guy. If you don't honor me, you don't honor God. (laughs) That's what's happening here. Jesus is refusing to back down because, again, he wants no room for misinterpretation here. And what we are seeing is the highest form of irony because we have people who are hearing Jesus' words and they're crying, Blasphemous! Kill that man! And these are the very words of salvation. These are the very words of life that are being taught. The big reveal is here. 
Jesus is saying who he is, and he's leaving no room for misinterpretation. And he's telling it to these religious leaders who should know more than anyone else their Messiah and who are missing it completely because he's a good and gracious God. But this should be, this should be a heart check for us. We should just stop for a second. We should recognize that if these are the religious people and they're missing the, the God in flesh standing before them speaking the words of life, if they're missing that, we should probably do a heart check on ourselves. We should ask questions like, do I honor Jesus? Do I go to him as God? Have I recognized what he says he is and who he is? Well, this is a really heavy reality. And uh, honestly, I wish I could stop preaching here because we've gotten the whole big idea in at this point. We've gotten honoring Jesus, reflecting the Father perfectly, life and judgment. But Jesus is not done. He's far from it. So we shouldn't be done either. Verse 24 says, we actually get two more truly, truly statements. These statements are basically Jesus saying, you, you, you should listen to me. What I'm saying is true. And he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from life to death. Do you remember earlier when I said, Jesus saves whom he will? Well, Jesus here in this, just a few verses later, he's making it explicitly clear who that is. Jesus saves those who hear his word and believe God who sent him. Jesus saves that person. Jesus says, I, I save whom I will. And the person who hears my word and believes him who sent me, I will save. Well, this is amazing then because we have this, this word that gives life. What's the first part of this? He who hears my word. And uh, when I was going over this passage with Pastor Stephen uh, earlier in the week, uh, he pointed out the very real fact that we don't have a living, breathing, in flesh Jesus in front of us today. We don't have that. But what do we have? We have his living and breathing word. We have his word that gives life, that when people hear it and respond to it in belief, are saved. We have that word. So I'm here to tell you today that this is why we preach God's word adamantly from the pulpit. This is why we teach our children God's word. This is why we go out and we proclaim it to people who have not yet heard it. This is why we listen to it and meditate on it in our minds. It's because God's word is the word that brings life to the dead. So then, let's evaluate ourselves. Do I do these things? Do I treat God's word as if it gives life? Do I preach it to those who need to hear it? Do I teach it to my family? Do I meditate on it? Do I spend time with it? These are very real questions. These are things that if we want to honor Jesus, we need to honor his word. But there's more than just hearing the words of Christ. That would be amazing, right? Oh, you heard Jesus' words, you're saved. You heard Jesus' words, you're saved. Everybody, let's get megaphones and put them on top of our cars and drive around so they can all hear Jesus' words and they'll be saved. No, there's something else here. 
they also have to believe. There's an aspect here of belief. And Pastor Stephen, earlier in our sermon series, uh, he wisely said, don't assume God loves you. Accept it. That's what we're seeing played out here. Hear God's words of love and life and believe them. Accept them. Live as if they are true. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This includes Jesus' words. So there's another warning that we have. We have this warning that has come up to us because what is happening to the people that Jesus is talking to? Is this playing out? Are they hearing and believing? No. Remember when we talked about Jesus being the perfect reflection of God of the Old Testament? Well, there are passages, we won't turn to them, but there are passages like Psalms 115.6, Jeremiah 5.21, Isaiah 6.10 that say there are people who will have ears and they will not hear. They will not believe. And what's so ironic here is that Jesus himself is fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament. He is the perfect reflection of God of the Old Testament by making this prophecy come true and that there are people in front of him who are hearing his literal words of life and are not believing. This is happening. This is another heart check for us. Do we hear Jesus' words and do we respond? Do we, our big idea, do we honor him? The last part of this verse, I just, I, I love this. The last part of this verse says, uh, uh, the person who hears his words and believes does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Guys, you know what this means? This means that Jesus is in the business of doing reverse death. That's what that means. You know what we say? We say when someone dies, they've passed on, right? Their life has passed it is over. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that I take people who are dead and I pass them into life. It's wonderful. So who is Jesus? Here's our next question. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the God who gives life to the dead. All right, a few more verses here. Verse uh, 25 through 26. Here's our last truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear him will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now Jesus is once again claiming, I have the power to give life. He's saying it again. There's no room for misinterpretation. But what kind of life is he talking about in this verse? He says, the hour is now here. Well, has everybody been raised from their tombs and walked out? No. That hasn't ha it hasn't happened yet. So that we will see later, that's in our passage, that, that's what he's talking about. But here, what Jesus is talking about is a spiritual death, a separation from God, the inability to know God. And he's saying that he is the one who fixes that death, who reverses that death. Now, this spiritual life has physical life ramifications. It does, and we will see that very soon. But Christian, are you living like this today? Are you walking around as if you have been made alive 
in Christ? Is that something that you do? Do you recognize that you no longer are a slave to your sin and to death? That you've been liberated and brought into the kingdom of life because of Jesus? How neat is it here that uh, it says that uh, we have life or that Christ has life within himself? Within himself. I find this really interesting because what does the Bible say when we are saved? We are in Christ. Where are we being placed? In life. Because it is within Jesus. And this is just incredible to me on the story of the woman on the well that Ted Boykin preached. This woman is going to what? A well, which is what? A place you go to to draw out water, which sustains and gives life. And he goes to this well and he says, I have living water, better water. But where is the water? Where's the living water? Where's the life? It's within Christ. Just as it is within the well, it is within Christ. He is the well of life. He is the spring of life. He is telling her, the life is in me. Come to me. Hear my words and believe and receive life. Be placed in Christ. Swim in the well of life. Verse 27. We just got a bunch on life and we're going to go back to judgment. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. We've, we've talked a lot about judgment, so all I want to highlight here is this last part of the verse, the son of man. I'm going to tell you a very quick story. It's one of my favorite stories from college. I went to a class, and it was called Jews, Christianity, and the Bible. I took that class. It was a phenomenal class. It was taught by a brilliant man. His name was Rabbi Shapiro. He was a Harvard graduate, absolutely brilliant man. He did not believe Jesus was God. And one of the things he did is he pulled up a passage, and I think it was this one. I'm not sure, though. There's several times. Uh, Jesus' favorite title for himself was um, the Son of Man. And he pulls up a passage that, where Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man. And he goes, ha, see? Jesus had never claimed to be God. Jesus isn't God. Jesus is saying he's the Son of Man. Well, I'm a son of man. Are you a son of man? Yes, you are. Of course you are. You're a son of man. We're all sons of man. Jesus has said his most favorite title for himself is, I'm not God. Gotcha. Well, Rabbi Shapiro, are you familiar with Daniel chapter 7? Yes, why? Well, let's read it. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of man. This is a prophecy, by the way. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was give, given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I'll say it again. Jesus emphatically claimed to be God, and he wasn't afraid to use the Old Testament scriptures to prove it. His kingdom is everlasting. His kingdom reigns. His kingdom is coming and will be there forever. This is why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, 
your will be done? We are praying this. We are praying, Jesus, come and establish your forever reigning dominion and kingdom. Jesus, come and reign. This is going to be unlike any other kingdom. So I'm going to finish up. I'm going to uh, read the last two verses, and then we'll give a conclusion and we'll be done. Uh, The last two verses, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, for those of you who are uh, reading this closely, you might be saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Stephen. Is this works-based salvation? We're resurrecting, people, we're resurrecting people who have done good to salvation, and we're resurrecting people who have done bad to judgment and death? That doesn't sound like what we teach here. I thought we, I thought we taught that uh, salvation was through Christ alone and faith alone in Christ. Christ alone, right? Yes, that's what we teach. This is not works-based salvation. Um, we already know from our passage that Jesus is the only way to know God. But if we were to look back at John chapter 3, verse 21, it spells out uh, pretty clearly that those who walk in the light of God are the ones who do good works through God. It is God who does the works, not them. What Jesus is saying here is those who have been saved and redeemed, those who have placed their faith in him, those people will do works through God working in them. That's what he's talking about. It's not a works-based salvation at all. It's a a faith in Christ salvation. So, uh, So then what happens here at the end? What is, what is Jesus saying is going to happen? Well, he's saying that he's going to speak his words of life and everyone is going to come out of the tombs. It says all. And that should be very scary for some because that means that you don't get to escape God even in death. All are raised to either judgment in life or judgment in death. And Jesus is a man of his word. This is a final big reveal that we are still waiting for. We are waiting for the final reveal of when all that Jesus has said he will do comes true. And when he comes back and when he raises the dead to life and when he judges and establishes his kingdom, that will be the final greatest reveal in all of human history that Jesus does what he he says he's going to do and that he is God. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I have two questions to two different groups of people that are here. Christian, do you live as if this big reveal is true? Do you long to hear the words of Jesus, the words that give life? Do you speak them to others? Do you live like you have been healed and made whole? Do you honor Jesus as he should be honored? As God? Do you live like one who has been raised from spiritual death? given 
spiritual life and will one day be raised again forever by being placed in Christ. Do we do this? This is a heart check for us. We need to make sure that this is where we are at when we read Jesus' words and when we think about Jesus. So then, non-Christian, if you're here and you do not know Jesus, do you live like these things are true? Do you understand what Jesus claims to be, who he claims to be? Do you understand that he is saying that you have spiritual death, that you cannot know God without him? In the words of Jesus to the lame man of Bethsaida, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? If this is you, and you do not know Christ as your Savior, if you have not placed your faith in Him, if you have not honored Him as God, hear His words. Go to Him. Repent of your sin and believe that He is who He says He is. And you will be placed from death into life. You will be placed in Christ. And there is no greater thing. There is no greater thing.